Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 197, Water Bears in Space. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. Water bears are about to head to the International Space Station. If you're not familiar with water bears or tardigrades, they are super tiny animals that are best known for their ability to survive in some of the harshest conditions. Extreme heat, extreme cold, bottom of the ocean, near volcanoes, highly radioactive environments, and even the vacuum of space. Exactly how they survive in these conditions is something that Dr. Thomas Boothby has been studying for years. Thomas is an assistant professor at the University of Wyoming Department of Molecular Biology, and he's taking his research to the International Space Station as the principal investigator for Cell Science 4, which is, you guessed it, sending water bears to space to study how they adapt to microgravity. I got a chance to chat with Thomas about water bears and this investigation that will be making its way to the space station aboard the SpaceX Dragon on the upcoming CRS-22 mission. So let's get right to it. Enjoy. Dr. Thomas Boothby, thanks for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Absolutely. My pleasure to be here. Hey, this uh, mission that's going to be carrying your experiment to the International Space Station is right around the corner, about to launch. How are you feeling in, in anticipation of this uh, of this launch coming up? Uh, me, personally, I'm extremely excited. Um, we've been working on this since uh, 2015, so a lot of hard work um, and time has gone into this, and uh, really exciting that the launch is right around the corner. Well, let's get right into it, Thomas. Um, we're going to be talking about water bears today, and I got to say, I am a I am a huge fan. Uh, I discovered them like a, I think it was back, man, it was a couple years ago. Animal Planet did this uh, did this show called The Most Extreme, and they did one on like the most extreme survivors, and that's where they just went deep into the survivability of a water bear. And I was like absolutely fascinated. I could not believe uh, what these things were capable of surviving in. So let's just start there, uh, understanding water bears, tardigrades, um, because th that will sort of help us transition into this specific uh, science investigation that's going to, to space station. So let's start with uh, tardigrades 101, Thomas. Uh, take us through uh, what these things are. Well, so tardigrades, or water bears, as they're sometimes commonly referred to as, uh, are a group of microscopic animals that are capable of surviving some of the harshest conditions that, that we know of. Um, so despite being these like teeny tiny little microscopic organisms that, that you need a microscope to see, um, they're extremely robust. Um, so they can survive a number of extremes that, that we typically think of as being restrictive to life. So some examples of, of sort of extreme environments uh, or conditions that tardigrades can survive include um, being dried out to the point where they essentially have no water left inside their body or cells. They can be frozen down to just above absolute zero. Uh, they can be heated up, um, in some cases past the boiling point of water. They can survive thousands of times as much radiation as, as you or I could. Uh, they can go days or weeks with little or no oxygen. and 
maybe the sort of most remarkable um, feat that they've been shown to perform is that they can actually survive in the vacuum of outer space. Um, they're the only animal that we know of that can that can do this. So they're really they're really quite amazing and unique. So if I were to if you were to have a picture of a tardigrade, how would you how would you describe sort of what they look like? <laughs> yeah. So uh, what what I tell people is think about the little like gummy bear candy uh, <laughs> and imagine that, but with eight legs instead of four. They look <laughs> like these kind of chubby um, little eight legged gummy bears. Um, yeah, I think you know they're they're pretty adorable. If, if people have seen uh, pictures of them, um, they're pretty charismatic. Um, but that's usually how I describe them. Yeah, and they're. Um, I mean, the pictures I've seen of them, they kind of look clear, right? Yeah. So depending on what kind of microscope you're using to look at them, if you're using like a light microscope, um, mm-hmm. many tardigrades are are transparent, so you can you can see through them. Others aren't. Um, so different species of tardigrades actually, like morphologically, like how they look is pretty uh, distinct. Um, you have some that, yeah, as you said, are just kind of clear. Uh, you have others that almost look like they have like armored plates on their backs. They look like little tanks, um, <laughs> and those are a little bit harder to see through. But, yeah, there's actually quite a bit of uh, sort of um, morphological uh, um, diversity within the the group of uh, of animals so uh in the beginning of of this chat you talked about all of these different very extreme conditions that the water bears can survive in so if i were to go hiking around planet earth where could i find them so tardigrades have actually been found almost any anywhere and everywhere that folks have looked for them um they've been found you know on the tops of mountains like in the himalayas um, in the deep ocean, um, in mud volcanoes, tropical rainforests, uh, in, 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 in Antarctica. Um, but amazingly, if you just go in your backyard, they're probably living back there. Oh, wow. I didn't realize they were, they were so uh, widespread. Absolutely. Um, so really when it comes to the extreme stuff, right, I guess my, my backyard, I wouldn't really consider that that very extreme, but... Um, let's just say, you know, like near a volcano or in like a very high pressure environment, um, you know, what are they doing? Are they just sort of swimming around or do they go into some sort of process to help them survive these extreme conditions? Yeah. So one of, one of the tardigrade sort of greatest tricks, uh, is this ability to go into, um, an ametabolic state. So a state where essentially they shut down, all the sort of life processes that are going on inside of them. And when they do this, they, they pull their eight little legs and head inside their cuticle. That's, that's sort of like their exoskeleton that surrounds their body. And they curl up in this little ball-like structure known as a ton. So have you ever seen like one of these little like roly-poly bugs? Yeah. They're kind of like a tiny little microscopic version of that where they, they curl up in this little ball, they shut down all their life processes that are going on, And, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, they sort of, it's almost like they're dead, Um, but they're in this state, they're extremely resilient, and they're able to to ride out um, the the sort of rough, harsh, extreme conditions. Um, So, you know, if that's a desiccating environment where water is being lost, you know, they'll curl up in this little ball-like structure, um, dry out. And then, you know, when water returns to the environment, 
Um, they, they uncurl. They come out of this uh, ball-like structure. And within an hour or so, you'll see them scrambling around, eating, reproducing, like, like nothing happened to them. Unbelievable. Um, I'm sure you've been studying this for a long time. So, you know, you talk about when water is reintroduced to environment or, or they're, you know, they're, they're in a better environment where they can get out of this, uh, this ton. Um, how long have you seen some of these water bears in this state before they return back to, you know, kind of frolicking through and, and uh, eating and reproducing and all that? Yeah, so, so tardigrades are able to enter this, this ametabolic state and many species are extremely um, stable and viable uh, in in that in that state. Hmm. Um, so, kind of an average would be about a decade or so um, in this in this ametabolic state. Um, but there are reports um, that that tardigrades uh, have been shown to survive, um, you know, for for like over a hundred years. Um, these were experiments going into herbariums where they had preserved plant material and people gathered tardigrades off that preserved plant material um, which you know was documented and cataloged when it was gathered and preserved um, and they've been able to uh, purportedly revive tardigrades that are you know hundreds of years old unbelievable now I mean it's this is a very unique trait for an animal you know not everyone not every everyone every animal can do this um, so what is it about the tardigrade what unique quality do they possess uh, to be able to to do this sort of thing? Well, that's a really excellent question, and that's, <laughs> that's something that, uh, that my lab and, and other labs um, are, are trying to uncover. Um, we've found uh, some hints and clues, um, but certainly there's a lot more to learn. Um, but one of the really interesting features uh, of tardigrades that we found was that when they start to, to dry out or enter these sort of extreme environments, um, they start to produce a very special class of protein. And this is actually a type of protein that um, is unique to tardigrades. So, so no other organisms that we've, that we've looked at um, possess similar, similar proteins. And what these proteins do is something very interesting. Um, they build up in their concentration. So the tardigrades just start making more and more and more of these things. And what these proteins seem to do is they make the environment inside the tardigrade, so like inside the tardigrade cells, really, really viscous. So imagine, you know, as opposed to water, which is very liquid, imagine it more like becoming like honey, where it's very sort of gooey and, and, and viscous. And what this sort of increased viscosity does is it slows down all the bad things that are happening. So, you know, parts of cells start to break down or unfold or fuse together normally when, when a cell is drying out. But in this sort of super viscous environment, all those things are still happening. They're just happening very, very slowly. And when, when this sort of super viscous environment gets even drier, it, what it does is it forms a glass, so like, like glass in a window pane. And this is really important um, because glass has a very different molecular makeup than, say, something like a crystal. So if tardigrades made something that filled their cells with crystals, that would be really bad because crystals are very sharp and pointy. They can puncture cells or 
crush, uh, you know, sensitive material inside of the tardigrade cells. But these glasses are much smoother and sort of more amorphous. And they're actually able to encapsulate um, these, these sensitive molecules inside of tardigrade cells and actually preserve them within this sort of glass-like matrix or structure. And what's really amazing is when water returns to the system, when you rehydrate a tardigrade, that glassy material just kind of melts away and it goes back into solution. It dissolves into the, into the water. And it releases all those sensitive molecules that were stabilized inside of it back into the tardigrade cell where they can perform their, their normal biological functions. Thomas, this is this is amazing. I mean, I, I, my next question, uh, I feel like, is, is a genuine one, but I feel like just everything you've just described sort of answers it for me, just how interesting this is. But what got you interested in this fascinating world of, of researching tardigrades? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, so besides tardigrades just being, you know, at least to me, like really fascinating, um, you know, wanting to understand kind of the the outliers in biology, right? Like, um, you know, tardigrade biology is quite unique um, and, and, in my opinion, understudied. And so, you know, just from a purely, from a place of pure intellectual curiosity, um, understanding how these little creatures are able to do something that, you know, for us would be so sort of mind-bogglingly impossible to achieve is was really, really of interest to me. Um, and then beyond sort of the fundamental biology of tardigrades, I, I was really attracted to studying them because of some of the potential applications. Um, you know, what, what we could do in terms of taking the fundamental biological findings um, that we made studying tardigrades and, and sort of the promise of applying that knowledge to, to trying to solve real-world problems. Um, was really, really sort of attractive to me. So tell me about, um, you're, you're at the uh, University of Wyoming, right? So you, you, you sort of went and described a little bit more about this protein, uh, and, and you mentioned that you're still doing a lot more research to figure out exactly what's going on to allow the tardigrade to have this sort of unique process. So tell me about some of your research that you're doing over there. Absolutely. So we've got, we've got quite a bit of sort of diverse research going on here. Um, on sort of the fundamental biological side, we're, we're really interested in understanding how these tardigrade proteins are working. So like what are the building blocks that make up these proteins that make them so special and so protective? Um, we're also really interested in understanding whether or not these proteins and, and other tricks that tardigrades use to, say, survive when they dry out we're really interested to know if those are the same tricks that tardigrades use when they're faced with other extremes, like freezing, for example. So do tardigrades have sort of one, one way of surviving many different extremes, or do they have many different tricks for surviving all these different extremes? Um, and then on the more applied side, we're, we're really interested in how we can take that knowledge uh, and, and adapt it to, to addressing real-world problems like um, stabilizing pharmaceuticals or, or developing crops that are more resistant to extreme environments. Um, so that's kind of our research in a nutshell. 
So I imagine you, you mentioned there are tardigrades all over the world, uh, and you want to understand more about the some of these different processes, uh, or at least when they hibernate, or I guess go into this. Um, uh, you said I forget the exact state, something about metabolism, but uh, essentially into this 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 state uh, and and in this ton. Um, do you get to travel to some of those locations as part of your research, like to you know volcanoes or to whatever deep deep sea and, and understand like pressure, or are you bringing them to the lab and, and doing everything uh, in the at your university? Yeah, so so a little bit of both. Okay. Um, so um, a couple years ago, uh, as part of a NSF um, training training grant, uh, I was able to go down to Antarctica, and uh, oh, we, cool. we were finding tardigrades down there, um, along with doing some experiments. Um, one of the reasons that uh, our lab uh, located to Wyoming was to be closer to some of these extreme environments um, that we study organisms from. So Wyoming has a number of uh, really diverse um, extreme environments, you know, People typically think of, you know, sort of the, the hot springs um, out in, in Yellowstone. Mm, yeah. um, but then there's also Wyoming's Red Desert, which is an immense high elevation desert. So, so very cold and very dry um, with sort of Martian-like uh, environments. Um, and then, of course, you have the Bighorn Mountains, the Snowy Range Mountains. Um, so, you know, we kind of have all different types of environments out here in Wyoming where we go and, and collect organisms from. That's but, pretty cool, yeah. you got to enjoy those those kinds of trips then. you got to enjoy the, the harsh environments. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It, <laughs> it helps, it helps to, uh, to be a little bit tough if you want to go and, uh, and study uh, these little critters out there. <laughs> Well, look, uh, the the space station is only 250 miles from Wyoming. Uh, you just got to go straight up. So how uh, how did it happen where you were looking at all these different extreme environments and you thought, ah, you know where we should go is the space station? Yeah, so, you know, um, how that kind of came about was um, I, I was just really curious um, in this observation that, tardigrades actually survive a number of extremes that they would never have been exposed to. So it's kind of this perplexing question of, you know, how could an organism evolve to tolerate a condition that it, it didn't evolve in? Um, and space flight and space environments are, are probably some of the sort of most foreign or alien environments that you can think of um, for an organism that evolved on Earth. Uh, and so... There have been some, some space studies using tardigrades before. Um, in particular, there was, a, there was a Russian capsule that went up in 2007, which actually exposed tardigrades to the vacuum of, of space. Um, and they were left out there for about 10 days in low Earth orbit. Um, and they were shown to, to be viable after that exposure. Um, there was another mission involving uh, some Italian scientists um, which showed that, that tardigrades could um, survive and reproduce without any negative effects during spaceflight. Um, and so, yeah, I got really interested in, in, in trying to, to understand how, right? Not just mm -hmm. can they do this, but how are they able to do this? Um, and so that's, that's really kind of the, the kind of main driving scientific question for, for the Cell Science 4 mission is, 
understanding how tardigrades adapt to being exposed to outer space uh, or to space conditions, uh, rather. Um, and then under those prolonged uh, space flight conditions, how do they change and adapt after that initial exposure, um, you know, say over multiple generations? Hmm. So let's get into it. Let's get into the experiment that's going on the International Space Station. You called it Cell Science 4. So what's the uh, what, what's this experiment that's going on? Yeah, so what we're really interested in doing is looking at what the initial changes in gene expression. So, so how tardigrades are adapting um, to spaceflight environments is initially, um, and then how that changes over multiple generations. So essentially what we're going to be doing is sending tardigrades up um, from, from the, the Kennedy um, Space Center um, to the ISS, and we're going to basically have two different pools of tardigrades. One pool is going to be our sort of founding generation, where after a week of being in space, we're going to preserve them in a, in a special chemical preservative. But then the second pool, we're going to let gr uh, culture and, and grow and reproduce um, for two months. And, and that'll represent about four generations of tardigrades. So they'll, they'll have time to reproduce, um, and their offspring will reproduce, and so on and so forth for, mm -hmm. for four generations. And then we're going to preserve those multi-generational um, tardigrades. Uh, and when we get these preserved tardigrades back to our lab here in Wyoming, what we do is we extract uh, a certain molecule called RNA. And this is kind of an intermediate molecule between the tardigrades' DNA, their genes, and the final products that those genes uh, are sort of the blueprint to make. And so... By looking at these molecules that we can extract, we can tell what changes in gene expression um, tardigrades are, are inducing um, when they're exposed to space initially and when they're exposed to spaceflight conditions over the long term. And our hope is that by understanding how these tough little organisms are able to survive spaceflight conditions, that this will um, give us hints and clues into, you know, how we might safeguard astronauts uh, during prolonged space missions. See, that's that's going to be a big deal, especially for um, for NASA's plans to go to the to the moon and Mars. Uh, just one one extra step to uh, to help out in that process. Very very fascinating stuff. Absolutely. I'm curious to hear about um, how you've been preparing to get this experiment going. You know, you, uh, you I guess, um, had to start with the initial process of figuring out how to get uh, the tardigrades into space. But what's what's been the process from the initial concept to getting everything packed and, uh, and basically ready to go on a rocket? Yeah, so, so initially, kind of the biggest consideration was just trying to figure out how we're going to grow these little animals in space. Um, so in the lab, we normally grow them in these sort of big glass Petri dishes um, filled with a, with a liquid medium. Um, but in space, uh, that, that wouldn't work so much because in, in microgravity, the, the liquid media that the tardigrades grown would just sort of float away. Hmm. So, yeah, initially it was 
validating um, a bioculture system that had been developed by some NASA engineers and, and adapted to, to this project. Um, and then it was really just going through a number of sort of dry runs and, and seeing, you know, in ground-based experiments how our experimental plan uh, for the actual flight experiment went. Um, you know, it was a lot of optimizing things that, that don't sound very exciting, like <laughs> how fast a pump moves water through the system or how much oxygen we need to deliver um, to, the, to the media. But, you know, all that sort of nitty-gritty um, detail has been worked out, and we're now actually, uh, this, just this week, in the process of prepping our samples that will go up to the ISS. So that basically involves loading the tardigrades into syringes that will be frozen and can be stored frozen and delivered um, to the ISS in this sort of uh, inactive state. And then along with that, we're packaging up a lot of the, the food that the tardigrades eat because um, over multiple generations, they're going to need to be fed a couple times um, to stay healthy. Um, so the, the species of tardigrade that we use, um, they eat unicellular algae, so little little um, algal cells. So we're also uh, getting those loaded into syringes and, and ready to be sent up to the space station. Hmm. So actually running the uh, experiment on station, it sounds like this whatever setup you have is going to be installed on a facility on space station. And every once in a while, is it going to require astronaut interaction to go ahead and use the syringe and feed the water bears over generations? Absolutely. So, yep, when, the, when our samples get up um, to the space station, they'll be in syringes. And um, the, the, the astronauts will need to thaw out the tardigrades to sort of reactivate them and then inject them into this bioculture system. Once they're in the bioculture system, it's pretty hands-off. Um, we have telemetry, so we can sort of monitor the temperature and the flow rates and everything inside the bioculture system. But then, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, at, at sort of two-week intervals, um, an, an astronaut is going to need to attach an algal syringe to the bioculture system and inject fresh algae into it for the, for the tardigrades to eat. Um, but, and, then, and then at the end of the experiment, um, they're going to need to essentially sort of dismantle a portion of of that bioculture system, which will be frozen and stored until um, we can't get it back at our lab in Wyoming. So there will definitely be some uh, some astronaut um, interaction with this with this experiment. Um, but there are also sort of large portions that are that are automated. Yeah, honestly, it sounds pretty easy in terms of the, the astronaut crew time needed. Just, you know, feed it. It sounds like not even that often. You said once every two weeks was the feeding schedule? Yep. Yeah, see, that's not even that bad. When it comes to measuring, though, um, you, you said you're going to – it is going to return. That's that's part of the plan is it returns back to Earth. You go to the lab, and, and you have a, a number of, of things that you're going to be looking at. Is there anything on orbit – um, that will be uh, that you have in terms of measuring tools. Uh, it sounds like you have the in the facility have the ability to control climate and watch uh, all data coming in. But are you going to be doing any data gathering from the facility while it's in orbit? So the only sort of measurements that we're making uh, on orbit are environmental measurements. Um, mm-hmm. So you know what the what the environment that the bioculture system is in. Um, and we're going to be using that telemetry, so, you know, the temperature and, and, and 
whatnot, to replicate those experiments back here on Earth. Um, and so we call those our, our near-synchronous ground controls. So we're basically going to be doing the exact same experiment, but here on Earth, um, almost in real time with the, with the flight mission. Um, but yeah, all the, all the sort of um, biological data that will be gathered is going to be done once we get the samples back from the space station. Mm. Um, then we'll process them here, here in the lab in Wyoming. So you said you said we right. So it's not just it's not just you sending the the water bears up and looking at everything. It sounds like you got you got a, a decent support team that's helping to to bring all of this together. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, yeah, it's really great that you bring that up because um, you know I, I'm just I'm just one person in a in a team of really uh, amazing folks. Um, so here here in the lab um, in Wyoming. Um, specifically, we have Cherie Hesgrove and Ryan Betcher are working on this project. Um, but then on, on the NASA and the KBR side of things, we have a lot of people um, who, who really sort of deserve some credit. So specifically, um, Medea Torres is, is our CS4 uh, mission scientist, Natalia um, Dvorskin is our contract support scientist. And then on the KBR side, there's a bunch of people that I'd just like to acknowledge really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel Nolan, Kevin Sims, Oscar Rock, um, Christina Lim, Crystal Kumar, Chris Vogelsong, Brandon Schmidt, and Jamie Bales, Susan Markey, Megan Feldman. And then on the NASA engineering side, Peter Zell and David Pletcher. And I'm sure I'm forgetting some other folks, but it's been a it's been a huge uh, team and, and group effort to get to this point, and uh, and yeah, I think it's worth taking a couple of minutes just to acknowledge all these folks. Absolutely, yeah, and that's that's part of the whole deal, right? Is it's not just you know, it's not just hey, Thomas, let's get your experiment on the International Space Station. It 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 does really take a team, not only to get it up there, but to do all of the work to to monitor it, make sure it's it's working fine, and then of course, uh, what you what you're all anticipating is when you get the water bears back from space into the lab in Wyoming, and you get to conduct some fascinating research from from that uh, from that group of water bears that went up there. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, one of the things I'm thinking of, Thomas, is, um, you know, there's, uh, what, I think what we're all anticipating is when you're starting that research, um, you know, what are the potential applications that you're thinking of in terms of maybe something we can learn that we can bring back to, to benefit us here on Earth or uh, something that we can use to further space exploration? What are the, some of the things that you're looking at that might have uh, potential benefits to this experiment? Yeah, well, definitely. Part of, part of the sort of stated goal of this mission is, you know, to start to build a foundation for developing therapies or countermeasures that might better safeguard astronauts in the future during prolonged space missions. Um, so, you know, as I as I sort of mentioned before, mm-hmm. space flight um, can be a really challenging sort of environment for organisms, including humans, who have evolved uh, to the conditions on Earth. So, in in space, you have um, much less gravity, you're in microgravity, um, and you're also exposed to a lot more radiation. So for, for humans um, who spend a lot of time in space, um, you know, th- there can be detrimental effects um, to being in these environments. And so one of the things we're really keen to do is understand 
you know, how are tardigrades surviving and reproducing in these environments? And can we learn anything about the tricks that they're using that might be adapted to safeguarding astronauts? Um, so, for example, if we see that tardigrades, uh, when exposed to sort of this increased radiation in space, um, which produces a lot of reactive oxygen species, which are these sort of damaging chemical moieties that, that are really bad for cells. If tardigrades are producing a lot of reactive oxygen species scavengers, which basically kind of negate those negative effects, then that might be something that we would consider either through, you know, like a dietary supplement or something like that, providing astronauts with increased antioxidants or reactive oxygen species scavengers um, that would just help them stay stay healthier in space um, for longer. See, this makes me think uh, about this experiment. And this, uh, like you said, you want to you want to set a foundation, right? That's what you uh, were talking about whenever uh, you were thinking of, of potential application. And I think that's a very exciting thing to say because what makes me it makes me think that this is scalable, right? You can continue the research, uh, maybe maybe bringing next cell science uh, investigations up to the International Space Station. And you were just mentioning the radiation environment, which in low Earth orbit is is a little bit different from, say, the moon. And with the Artemis program, uh, with NASA returning to the moon, there are potential, there are potential uh, options to have investigations like this where you can study water bears in an even higher radiation environment and gather even more unique data. Um, so it, to me, it sounds like this is something that you can continue for a while. Absolutely. We hope so. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot more to learn about tardigrades. Um, and, and a lot of, uh, you know, continuing potential benefits to, to, um, to society. And that's, a, that's such a big deal, and it's all happening on board the International Space Station coming here real soon. So, so, Dr. Thomas Boothby, thank you again for coming on Houston. We have a podcast, and really best of luck to you and your team as you gear up for this launch of, uh, on a SpaceX uh, cargo dragon to the International Space Station. Best of luck to you as your, as your journey just begins for Cell Science 4. Great. Thanks very much. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you learned something about water bears and you're as excited as I am for this launch, a CRS-22. You can watch these water bears launch from Florida, travel to the International Space Station. Just check out our website, nasa.gov slash NTV has the latest on our TV schedule when you can see the launch live. If you like uh, this podcast, we are one of several NASA podcasts across the entire agency. You can check all of them out at nasa.gov slash podcasts. We, Houston, we have a podcast, are uh, on the Johnson Space Center uh, pages of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So if you want to talk to us, just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform. You can submit an idea or ask us a question. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on May 6th, 2021. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norma Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, Rachel Berry, and the International Space Station Program Research Office for helping to set us up with Thomas. And of course, thanks again to Dr. Thomas Boothby for taking the time to come on the show. 
Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.